Hi, Jeff. Hi, listeners. Welcome. Hi, Melina. Hi, Jeff and Melina. Melina? Don't go. What's going on? I'm your virtual voice avatar. Also, meet my friend Jeff. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Melina, I didn't say that. I don't believe you. But I mean, some of us here weren't exactly invited. I get the feeling. Well, we're here now. I think we should start the show. Ready when you are. Hi, my name is Jeff Gustadus. And I'm Melina Ortworth. And this is from Know How to Roll. Hold up. Hold up a second. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Uh, Jeff, would you mind and explain to our dear listeners what just happened? Yeah, that was a little conversation we had with a computer program imitating us. We had an online artificial intelligence service trained to synthesize both our voices. To be honest, I, I really have to admit these sound avatars, they they sound terrifyingly real. Still, I hope that we're not yet obsolete. <laughs> not not yet, Melina. Uh, but I thought it would give us a taste of the future. Right, because that's the theme of this episode. We're going to talk about the future. And about artificial intelligence, because AI, of course, is a centerpiece of the future. And not just for the future of Bosch, but for the whole world. I talked to a couple of our brightest minds to tell you all about it. More on that later on. But uh, Melina, could you tell us about your research for this episode? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we decided on the theme for this episode and I started to dig a bit into the topic, read what I could find on the internet and yeah, began to deal with it. I kind of came to the conclusion that we're already living in the future. I'm totally with you there, but how do you mean that exactly? Let's take movies, for example. Can you think of a movie that you've watched, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago, that tried to paint a picture of the rather near future? Let's say mm. 2020, for example? Mm -hmm. And to me, when watching these kind of movies, this always felt super far away. <laughs> and now, like in the blink <laughs> yeah. of an eye, we're here. We're living in it. It's super freaky. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. But for sure, uh, I don't think any movie could uh, really have predicted 2020. But anyway. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't say that. Do you remember Contagion, the movie? Oh, yeah. Did you watch that one? Yeah. When, oh, when was yeah. that? In 2011? That was super was that 2011? scary. Oh, it shows the exact story of 2020. Yeah, really yeah, that's does. a good point. <laughs> but, but yeah, you're right. In general, it made me wonder, what did we imagine the future to be like? And what of that vision has become reality? Do you remember how you imagined today's world 20 years ago? <laughs> well, uh, 20 years ago, I was 14. <laughs> uh, and I might have been a little too wrapped up in my current 14-year-old world to worry too much about the future. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was, I was 10 20 years ago and probably still waiting for my Hogwarts letter <laughs> to arrive. So I was also super but I remember that I thought, for example, and I think I already shared with you that I'm not the most passionate driver, right? Right. But I yeah, mean, I thought I that, that autonomous driving would be a real thing sooner. Yeah. A real thing meaning that I just get in the car and it would drive me around autonomously by 2020. I always find it very interesting, though, when science fiction inventions become reality. 
And so I talked to Sam Rogers. He made one of the biggest sci-fi dreams of all times a reality. Well, everyone was expecting hoverboards by now, weren't they? Oh, yes. Please tell me he built a legit hoverboard. I know, yeah. But it, it turns out it's very hard, especially in such a small form factor, to make something hover. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, that would have been done by now, for sure. <laughs> Sam has been fascinated by this since he was a kid. And it's stayed with him. I loved all these kind of car films where they'd adorned the car with a load of, you know, like spy gadgets and things like that. So I ended up watching a load of Knight Rider um, with Kit, the car that could, you know, go into super pursuit mode or whatever other buzzwords they threw in there to make it sound cool. And yeah, the same thing applied to Back to the Future. This amazing looking car that looked like it was from the future, but also the way <laughs> the whole Back to the Future kind of franchise portrayed flight it was the delorean would take off the wheels would turn around underneath it and then the thing could hover and then fly around and it, there's something about flight where it's not in motion that is just magical and the same thing with the hoverboard yeah absolutely our our pop culture certainly proves that it's an intriguing concept and i think the hoverboard from those movies exactly it's uh, probably one of the most iconic sci-fi gadgets uh, that that's really ever mm -hmm, been absolutely. dreamt up yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want one, right? It would be so cool. And Sam Rogers certainly was hooked by the idea of owning one. He still has some of the drawings he made when he was little. I did all these drawings when I was very young of like these kind of magneto drives. I can't remember exactly what they call it. Ion drives in the board and like how people had hypothesized these could work. You know, looking at these, these almost conspiracy-like theories of how you could make a hoverboard online and things like that. Things that hover, things that fly. I, I love that kind of stuff. And sure enough, in the spring of 2020, Sam was standing on a hoverboard that looked just like the one from the movies and hovered into the sunset. Happily ever after. <laughs> the board prop you can buy for, for about £70. We bought a few of them uh, and I've got the one uh, on my wall with the kind of the pads rubbed off at the bottom, there's a load of scrape marks from where I tried to land and the boots velcroed to the top of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm buying that. Uh, a board for 70 pounds, I guess he meant British pounds, not the measure of mass, uh, but the, and Velcro <laughs> yeah. attached to the boots. Uh, I don't know about that. Then let me tell you about another small detail that I haven't told you about yet. That jet suit that Sam was wearing. The point of it is to, you know, use the jet suit, which is something crazy in itself. A suit that you can put on that's pretty low profile and you as a human can just take off and hover above the ground and fly wherever you want. And you feel like the, as you start up, the flames are looking out the nozzles. There's this beautiful bah, spool up noise. Everything's like, it like, it's like something out of a sci-fi movie anyway. I've seen a couple of those videos of people flying around in those jet suits. That's, um, that's pretty crazy stuff. Uh, you need to be pretty brave to put one of those mm -hmm. on. Yeah, I also saw these when yeah, doing my research for this episode. And Sam, he works for the company, in fact, that makes those jet suits. He's the design lead, and the suit looks the way it looks because of him. So really, he just combined his job with his passion and created a short video where he uses the jet suit with a hoverboard toy. Living a dream. And to make the illusion perfect, he hovers next to the car that you see in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, we went to a runway uh, in South England, and I used the jet suit with the hoverboard and Back to the Future 
boots strapped to my feet and flew down the runway alongside this DeLorean, showing it in flight alongside that DeLorean from the film. So yeah, it's, it was very much a, a kind of childhood fascination, but it was, I'm very lucky that I got to play it out and hopefully bring that hoverboard as close as it could be to actually flying. If you ask me, I can relate to this fascination with anything that levitates. We'll link to Sam's video in the show notes, and I'm sure you'll agree it looks almost as iconic as the real thing. The real thing, quote unquote, from science fiction. Yeah, I... I really, really want it to be real. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm with you there. But don't <laughs> you think the, this, this fascination with levitation is even stronger? Uh, I mean, when you see how it works, when there's no jetpack involved. Mm, yeah, certainly. And Sam Rogers would agree as well. So let's see what you think of the research that I recently learned about that's going on here at Bosch. Oh, yeah. Because this researcher wants to make levitating things a reality. He shares our fascination with levitation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, levitation still has something like the connotation of being magic. And this is simply fascinating to deal with this topic. I really wanted to know what does it take to levitate an object. That's Joachim Frangen, a chief expert for production automation at Bosch Research. So imagine if you want to make something hover. Mm -hmm. How would you do it if you're not using a jetpack? Well, I mean, there's there's quite some examples for hovering decor, for example. I can I can think of. Do you know these um, hovering globes, for example, or or these plant pots? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Looks pretty cool. <laughs> and I think they use magnetism for these kind of things. Bingo! Ha! Magnets is what Joachim wanted to use as well. But if you have ever played with magnet on a kitchen desk, you know that it is not easy to bring a magnet into a levitation state. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's unstable, right? They just move to the side when, when they're repelled by another magnet. Yeah, but Joachim's trying nevertheless, and not at his kitchen table, uh, but in his basement. Let's, uh, let's have a look. And the first challenge that I took was I wanted to levitate an object in two dimensions. So I took one magnet that was able to move only in X and Y and two actuation magnets on two rotary actuators underneath. And I could, with not much of engineering capabilities, make it levitating. So some early success there. He has one magnet levitating above two other magnets. But if I understood correctly what, what he was just saying, it cannot move freely, right? Whereas a hoverboard can move back and forth, left and right, and also up and down. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's a first step. Um, but actually, what you're describing really is important. It's all about degrees of freedom, as a physicist like Joachim would put it. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that you can move the thing in three directions, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Plus, you can rotate it around the three axes, X, Y, and Z. Okay, that would mean that you can actually make turns, right? You can turn the hoverboard left or right, or you can tilt it upwards or downwards. Right, plus rotate it around the long axis, like what skateboarders call a kickflip. So... As far as skateboarding goes, just control your six degrees of freedom and you're good to go. And that's also a solution to Joachim's problem. 
it is not more than controlling all six degrees of freedom. If you can make it to control all six degrees of freedom, you will get an object levitating. That's all. Nothing more. <laughs> he makes it sound very simple. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but of course, <laughs> there's a catch, unfortunately. Uh, Joachim came across this theorem that the British mathematician Samuel Earnshaw proved in 1842. Samuel Earnshaw found out that it is not possible to create a stable arrangement of magnets to get an object stably levitating in six dimensions. It might be possible in five dimensions, but not in six dimensions. Hmm, okay, that's, that's a bummer. So no magnetic levitation then? Well, you know, maybe Earnshaw's theorem just doesn't apply in Joachim's basement. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Well, he thinks he can work around it. Oh, really? Uh, and he's built a computer model that shows it works. Oh. It took me about half a year to do all this in simulations. And when I found that it works in simulation, I talked to my colleagues and showed my results. And they said, nice, but I don't believe it. You must show <laughs> that it really works. And then I went into my cellar. And I built a machine that showed that it really works. I built a demonstrator that could levitate in six degrees of freedom. Wait, what? No way. Yeah, very well. <laughs> okay. So one way I could imagine this would work is, is electromagnets? Because with electromagnets, you can change the current and make the magnetic field stronger or weaker. Is, is that what he did? Well, that was the first approach that Joachim and his team took. Uh, they researched this together with the university. But the problem is the electromagnets produce too much heat. That means the surface will heat up due to the high power demand. And when I looked at these technical issues with my physicist eyes, I felt challenged to develop a better solution. And with a new approach, I could realize a novel levitation method, the permanent magnetic levitation, that offers fundamentally higher potential than coil-based systems. So permanent magnets have a few advantages. They don't produce heat, and they don't need electricity. And their magnetic field is much stronger than that of electromagnets. Ah, okay. Got it, yeah. Makes sense. Um, now, what does Joachim's magic machine look like, though? <laughs> what did he come up with? Uh, so his machine actually looks very much like a table or a workbench. And then on top of it, you have this hovering platform. Yeah, basically, we have this carrier. This has a size of, let's say, 15 by 15 centimeters. And this is moving over a so-called stator. The stator is a device that is stationary and generates a levitation magnetic field. And the carrier has permanent magnets underneath mm -hmm. and is levitating in the magnetic field of the stator. I've only seen a video of it, but it is really fascinating. Yeah, sounds fancy. The carrier, or sometimes Joachim calls it the mover, it hovers about two centimeters above the stator. And it's absolutely stable. It doesn't vibrate or anything. It doesn't make a sound. And then it can, like magic, swiftly move around the surface of the stator can rotate and tilt. Ian, six degrees of freedom. Exactly. Okay, that's that's impressive. But the question remains, right? How? Yeah, um, underneath the surface of the stator, we have an array of permanent magnets, and they are actuated. They can turn 
around their rotation axis that is perpendicular to the surface. And by actuating the magnets, you can change the direction of the magnetic fields. So by superposition of the fields of this lots of individual magnets, you get a total levitation field that, if it is controlled in the correct way, makes the carrier levitating. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling that we're getting closer here. The control loop that we apply contains basically of three elements, the element of sensing, control, and actuation. In our case, sensing means we measure the carrier position in six degrees of freedom with high accuracy and low latency, generating the input data for the control, the next stage. And control means we have a hybrid AI control that processes the data and provides the actuation data And actuation, the third part, means that we output the calculated magnet angles to the magnets with high speed. Okay, that was that was quite a lot. Let me try to, to recap. So, also for me, <laughs> to make it tangible. You have magnets in both the mover and the stator. The magnets in the stator can be turned, and that way you can change the magnetic field that makes the mover hover and, well, move in the end. And in what way the magnets have to be arranged, that is determined by an AI. Correct? Spot on, Melina. Now, are you ready to unlock the next level? There is another level? Of course, <laughs> always more. So, so imagine that system. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, Joachim has named it Planetics. So picture Planetics as this mover comes along the surface. The magnetic field must change permanently. The magnets underneath must constantly change their position. So the three steps, sensing where the mover is, processing the data, and then changing the position of the magnets, those all need to happen in real time. And there is a neat trick to how Planetix does that. The nice thing about AI is that we can do it offline. So we can use very complex models with the advantage of having a higher stability, a better position accuracy, for example. We can do all this offline. It may take days. It's no matter because online, when we have the system switched on, we just need to recall the information and this can be done very quickly. So the execution time is nearly independent of the complexity of our system, our model. This is a huge advantage of the AI. So that is to say that, that the AI is prepared, if, if you will, for all possible situations beforehand. AI is, is really enabling a lot of fascinating new things. We haven't told our listeners, but this is the final episode of this first season of From Know How to Wow. And when I look back, in almost every episode, AI played a crucial role in the technology that we were talking about. Absolutely. That's totally true. Let's take a look in the past so far. 
there was Sound Scene, our very first episode, where we were talking to Sam Das. Background sound signals can reveal information about the state of things. Sam explains how Bosch Research's SoundSea technology uses audio AI. Powerful audio signal processing algorithms built with machine learning. To give meaning to the sounds it hears here on Earth and aboard the International Space Station. Yes, indeed, strong AI components there. Absolutely. And then we looked at the virtual visor when Jason Zink sheds light on how Bosch is innovating the 95-year-old sun visor. There's quite some AI-based elements involved in that. I'm still impressed that you can turn something as, well, as ordinary as a sun visor into something smart and intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> and even in Vivalytic, the medical testing device for coronavirus. Among other nasty things, of course, even Vivalytic uses AI to assess the testing results. We were talking to Martin Schultz of Both Healthcare Solutions. Uh, in this case, for the real-time PCR, we use a different amplification and detection technology where we detect the fluorescent signal while the amplification is still running, especially if you have a sample with a high viral load. That is possible, so you don't have to wait the whole 39 minutes, but maybe only 29 or 25 minutes for a result. Right. But at the beginning of this episode, we talked about visions for the future and science fiction. And when you think about AI in that context, one could be worried. Many movies make it seem like artificial intelligence is the most dangerous thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's Hollywood. And however, there are people who think that, that we should be careful when we use AI. And I totally agree. AI applications must adhere to the same safety standards as non-AI products. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we leverage the benefits of AI to make it safe at the same time? Yeah, legit question. I know that people at Bosch worked with leading ethicists to figure out the right approach to AI that fits our company. Bosch is truly committed to AI that is safe, robust, and explainable. And humans must always stay in control. I'm sure this makes sense on paper. But how do you actually build this into the systems? I talked to another expert to find out more. The way you start to achieve this degree of safety and reliability is through hybrid modeling. This is our colleague, Zico Coulter. I'm Zico Coulter. I am the chief scientist of AI research at the Bosch Center for AI. And in addition, I'm also a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University. And in both these two settings, I do research in machine learning, optimization, and in hybrid AI systems. Hybrid AI systems, that seems to be a thing. Joachim also already mentioned that. Well, what is it, though? Well, you know machine learning systems, right? They process enormous amounts of data yeah. and then build a model mm -hmm. solely based on that data. So uh, face recognition AI could look at thousands of faces and create a model of what a face looks like. Let's say that this is a 100% AI model. On the other hand, you have 100% physical models. Mm -hmm. So a physical model means like Newton's laws, for example. Let's say if, if you wanted to describe how an apple falls from a tree. Yes, basically. Physical models are what we've had before AI. Models that describe the world through relatively simple formulas. You know, we went to the moon from physical models, right? We'd never done it before, but we made predictions based upon mathematical models 
and we got to the moon and back. The problem, of course, is that in the real world, there's more than just the physics of the world, right? There's, there's human behavior, there's patterns, there's unpredictable elements that are sometimes harder than going to the moon. And so that's where you also need elements of AI to understand those patterns, to find correlations in those patterns. But you don't want to throw away the aspects of physical modeling that got us to the moon. You need this joint approach. And the way you really get safe, real-world deployed systems is exactly through this hybrid AI approach. Yeah, that is to say that hybrid AI is on a spectrum. It's somewhere between a fully physical and purely data-driven. Mm-hmm. What happens there is, I guess, that if you have an AI, you could tell it a little bit more about what is and what isn't possible in the real world. Yes, exactly. You're giving it some constraints. I could go back to my school knowledge of basic mechanics and tell my model, hey, make sure that you know force equals mass times acceleration. F equals MA. How would that work? I mean, I think that's a good example. So let's say that you wanted to predict a evolution of particles in some system, right? That in theory should be approximated exactly with F equals MA. But in practice, the the Fs, they aren't quite known, right? You have some notion of the forces that are involved and maybe you, you, you sort of see all the controls and therefore you, you know what the forces should be. But if you were to simulate the system based purely upon first principles, it would diverge from what you actually see in the real world. But one thing you can do is use a machine learning model to kind of learn, say, the deltas on F Mm -hmm. based upon some function of the state. Mm -hmm. And then you simulate your system still with F equals MA, so it's still a physical model, but there are components of some of that, the forces, say, that are actually fit to data and learned from data. Mm, Okay, that's interesting. So coming from a sort of idealized physical model, the AI allows for some wiggle room and makes the model more realistic. Yeah, exactly. And that way you get a much more accurate model and therefore better predictions. Uh, Or as I said earlier, it, it helps Bosch achieve our goal of safe and reliable AI. You also said that our AI should be explainable. So from what I understand, many AI models are kind of black boxes. They work, but you don't really know what's going on inside. Yeah, and that's a problem when you need to really trust that the system will not fail. So we want transparency or explainability. And yes, hybrid AI helps with that too, at least somewhat. I don't want to harp on this point too much because I think explainability in AI is actually a huge topic that has a lot of different facets to it. And it's not just as easy to solve as just saying, oh, plug in a, a hybrid model and then that will solve explainability. But what is the case is the more you can tie your system to principles and simple laws that engineers and people understand, the easier it will be to not only in a vague sense, understand that system, but also just practically debug that system and make that system work better from an engineering standpoint. The more you build in things you understand, the easier that whole process becomes. And Zico says that this is actually quite an issue in the world of AI. When you have a machine learning system that doesn't perform as well as you'd like, how do you fix it? 
The internal mechanics can get so complicated as to often become what, as Melina just said, folks call a, a black box. You can't in detail see or understand what's happening inside. Makes total sense to me. I'm just not sure right now. Talking about this technology, are we in the future or in the present? You sound like you're talking from the future. So do you. So, this hybrid AI. That's something that is a research topic, right? Something that we'll use in practice at some point in the future. Yes and no. Let's look at that future first. As Bosch, we go into it with round about 130 years of engineering knowledge that will be combined with AI in a hybrid approach. The sum total of engineering knowledge and understanding at Bosch is really almost unrivaled, right? This, it's, it's an amazing wealth of knowledge we have. We've collected over, as you say, more than 100 years of engineering. And to throw that all away and trust in AI would be foolish for all the reasons I've already discussed. And so the challenge of AI for a company like Bosch is exactly in this question of how do we leverage the engineering knowledge that we have and the experience that we have in a huge number of domains with these new innovations in AI systems? This is going to be the fundamental challenge for deploying AI within a company like Bosch. And it is going to be a problem that we have to address if we're going to successfully build AI into the majority of our products, which is the goal going forward for Bosch. I think the lesson here is we want to combine the best of both worlds. And only if we've balanced the interaction between people and AI will the full potential of AI be truly realized. Actually, there are already machines that are using this hybrid AI approach. And one of them we talked about earlier. And control means we have a hybrid AI control. Right, Planetix. It's actually a hybrid AI that makes Planetix mover, hover, and smoothly move around. Although Planetix is also somewhat future technology, uh, a demonstrator exists, and now the team is looking for real-world implementations. Where could it be used? Uh, well, uh, production environments are a great example. Think of food and pharmaceuticals that must be clean and aseptic. By levitating them during production, the contamination is reduced. And this applies also to high-throughput laboratories, like, for instance, for corona testing. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. And another use case would be clean rooms of the, the highest classes. Uh, robots are an issue there because of abrasion and the resulting particulates. But Planetix works frictionlessly, hence no abrasion and no dust. And when you think about Industry 4.0, where everything is about flexible production, Planetix is a much more versatile and adaptable than a traditional conveyor belt. That sounds great, but I'm I'm a little bit disappointed. I am. I was hoping that Joachim would use the technology to build hoverboards. Uh, well, you might be lucky uh, one day. Uh, the, the skater, uh, instead of looking <laughs> at a table, uh, or looking like a table rather, uh, could be a half pipe. And the mover, well, that could be your board. It's possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes! Uh, you're happy. I'm happy you're happy. Um, now, I, I don't know about your skateboarding skills today, but you actually wouldn't even need any. A hoverboard typically needs a balancing of the user. 
whereas our board is stable in itself. It has six degrees of freedom control. So you could simply sit on the mover or lie on the mover or whatever, do whatever you like. <laughs> uh, you do not need to actively stabilize the mover with your body. It's better and better. Wow. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> no, I don't think so. On the one hand, not just because I hope we'll all have a lot of fun with levitation in the future, but also because it sounds like hybrid AI can really push many products to the next level. And enable entirely new products that weren't even thinkable before. So yeah, I'm excited for that too. We also asked you, our dear listeners, to write us an email to contact, yes, it's with a German K, at bosch.de, if you have any ideas or even questions. And remember the Bosch motto? Invented for life. Invented for life. <laughs> Yeah. That already implies that our AI must be human-friendly, right? At scale and safe. And I think we heard here today that our engineers absolutely subscribe to that as well, and they make it happen. And that's not only a wrap on this episode, but also on our first season. We're happy to announce that this podcast will be continued next year. And we're going to be providing you with content regularly in 2021. There will be one new show each month. So stay tuned. What's left to say? Well, the most important thing, in fact, a huge thanks goes out to everyone who helped us make this podcast happen so far. From a technical perspective, coaching, consulting perspective, content-wise, our wonderful interview partners, a lot of people without whom this would not have been possible. So many people. Test, test. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hey, this is Brooke. I'm coming to you from Down Under, Australia. Hi, this is Elisa from Michigan. This is Natalie from Germany. Hello, my name is Jessica Dahl from the U.S. My name is Marilio Oliveira. I'm from Brazil. My name is Moritz Meyerle. I come from Germany. Hi, I'm Kate, and I'm in the U.K. This is Diana. I live in Colombia. I make from know-how to wow. From know-how to wow. I make. And I make. My name is Johanna and I make. I make from, from know-how know to wow. Hi everybody, I'm Patrick Scherer from Bosch Communications. I am the executive producer of this podcast. And big kudos from my side go out to Achtung Broadcast for producing this show, making it a Real audio experience. Hi, I'm Felicia. My name is Silvan Oschmann. Hi, my name is Stephanie Lachnet. Hi, my name is Thomas Reintjes. And of course, to all the Boschies you just heard about. These guys, they work together on that podcast from all over the world. And they do this voluntarily. It really, really comes from the heart. And I think that's what sets From Know How to Wow apart. This podcast made me very curious because I learned so much about our own company. What my colleagues are working on is really so worth listening. Enjoyable hosts, fascinating products. It's technical. It's also very relatable and fun and different than anything that's out there right now. So enjoy. 100% you'll come away being like, wow, I never knew that. So just be curious, listen in. And maybe it will inspire you. Our team also includes your hosts, our Jeff Gustaitis and Melina Otmar. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure and so much fun. Pleasure's all mine, <laughs> Melina. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast.